You are not alone. That's what Jesus came to tell you. This ancient story of a scared yet hopeful mother, a savior king swaddled in a manger, noble stargazing pilgrims, lowly shepherds and glorious hosts of heaven filling the night sky to announce peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Every word is about how God longs to be with us. In the noise that we create because we're afraid of the silence, God comes with one word, love. And if you'll stop and listen, you'll hear Him calling your name. He is a personal God. He became one of us to prove it. It seems like it's too good to be true. But God, who created all things, created you for love. He created you for joy. And this joy, the joy you long for, and this love, the love you struggle to receive, it's here, now, waiting. But will you let yourself hope? Will you let yourself dream? Will you let yourself wonder at the glory of God who came to dwell among us? Because God is in the business of exceeding expectations and redeeming stories. He takes small beginnings and makes them into more than we could have ever asked. That's what He did by coming as a helpless, baby in a manger, and that is exactly what He promises to do with you. And this is the wonder of His love. So she talked in there about silence, you know, and sometimes we don't like the silence, and I thought that's an interesting, a kind of a fascinating concept to think about. Um, when you think about, for instance, um, the two sides of silence. Have you ever thought about that? Like on one, one hand, silence is very disorienting and very um, troubling and very discomforting, right? Uh, like, for instance, um, the guy's dating the girl, right? And they're out there. They haven't been dating very long. And he gets the courage up and says to her one, one night after the date, I love you. And there's dead silence. And then he's like, oh, no, did she not hear me? Does she not agree with me? You know, it's like, oh, what, what, to, what to do, what to do? And it's kind of a, an uncomfortable thing there in that moment when they don't respond. Um, maybe, for instance, you, you know this scenario, like if you're involved in church at all, you know, you're sitting around in a Bible study and, and the leader throws out that very personal question, you know, and, and there's dead silence. <laughs> You know, no one wants to answer. And it's uncomfortable in that silence. Or you're praying, right? And we're all praying and, and we say, you know, okay, when we're, when we're all done praying, you know, I'll, I'll close in prayer. And so we sit there and then people are agonizing. Should I pray? What should I pray? Do I have the courage to pray? You know, and it's like, and there's the silence in between and eventually this person prays and this person prays. And, but there's that uncomfortableness sometimes in the silence. But then... It, it, it's kind of uncomfortable until it isn't. Until your mom, right? Think about this. Sometimes silence is golden. Like your mom, you know, and you've, you've got your one-year-old in your hands screaming, and your three-year-old is tugging at your leg, and your five-year-old has the TV on way too loud, and the doorbell rings. And you just wish you could get away to, you know, a bubble bath on some remote desert island. Um, you know, silence. The, the two sides of silence, and we'll kind of talk about them both today as we go through this message. We will look at both of those, just this reality of this issue of silence. And we're starting a Christmas series today, the original Christmas story. I have to say, I had a little struggle with this year's Christmas. So back in August, I laid out a theme, and I had put together some thoughts and kind of mapped out the five, five weeks of messages here. And... Um, but the last few weeks, I just really, it just wasn't resonating with me. It's like, I just don't like this idea. It just, it just didn't seem like it was. And so 
like about a week ago, God, this past week, really, God just kind of gave me this idea and it really resonated, really spoke to me. And I, I think if, if the message isn't going to speak to me, it probably won't speak to you. So maybe there was, uh, maybe that's for another time, but we're going to talk about the original Christmas story and not the traditional Christmas story because I, I, at first I thought about that. What a great title. Let's just talk about the traditional Christmas story. The problem with that is sometimes our traditionals are a little bit off. Traditions are a little bit off. Like we know some of this, like, when it comes to the wise men, most of us know now there were not three wise men. Most of us know now that, uh, you know, there was maybe a caravan into the hundreds that came with the wise men. Most of us know they didn't arrive at the major scene and didn't cross paths with the shepherds. Um, okay, they did a couple years ago in our Christmas program when they did that, you know, that Christmas reunion, you know, and they were all backstage, but... But the first Christmas, they didn't cross paths. They went to the home of Jesus probably six months or a year later. Um, so some of these traditions are, you know, the, the reality is sometimes our traditions are not always truth. And um, I remember when I first started in ministry and preached my first Christmas message, you know, some 25 years ago, studying this out and the first time I realized some of this stuff it wasn't really well known back then i don't think and i'm like wow i didn't know that about the wise men and then you start sharing it and people are like wow i didn't know that today it seems like everybody everybody knows that about eight years ago i kind of uncovered a little bit about the shepherds we were always told traditionally why why did god choose the shepherds because they smelled bad they were social outcasts and they were they reflected the savior's humility and and i'm not saying they didn't smell bad i'm not saying they weren't social outcasts and i'm not saying they didn't reflect his humility, but why did God choose the shepherds? Because they were shepherds. And Jesus was the Lamb of God born into the world. And, and they were the priestly shepherds. We've learned this. And I didn't know this for a long time. And you, you, as you do more study, you, you, sometimes you realize your traditions are not always the truth. And so it's not that traditions are all wrong. They're, they're good, but they're not always right. And so we have to kind of consider that sometimes for instance there probably wasn't a white christmas the first time around and most scholars will tell you that jesus was born in september not december sorry to burst your bubble there if you didn't know that but but as i said last week what do holidays do what does thanksgiving and christmas and all these holidays do they help us refocus and reorient our 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 our, our, our focus and remember you know, the significance of these seasons. And we're going to talk in this, in this series about the heart of the Christmas message and what God really wants us to walk away with. The, the original Christmas story there, kind of the cap, caption of this is when heaven, came, when heaven and earth collide. And I heard that phrase sometime, and I thought, what a great phrase, when heaven and earth collide, and that's exactly what's going on at Christmas. And we're going to talk today specifically, starting this off, when God broke his silence and that's exactly what's going on in this first christmas uh, what you have to understand is the book of malachi ends the old testament and then the new testament of course in our bibles we know it's not exactly where the new testament begins but in our bibles the new testament is matthew mark luke and john and jesus comes and there's the christmas story and be and from and from malachi to matthew basically there's 400 450 years of of silence when god is not speaking to his people the israelites and so they're in this time malachi uh, came along during the time of ezra and nehemiah the the jewish exiles had returned from babylonian captivity and first remember nehemiah had them rebuild the walls and then they and then they rebuilt their temple and they're reestablishing life again but malachi really gives a, a number of stern warnings to the jewish people they were they were a spiritually compromised people uh, that's really what's going on in this passage, um, in, 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 the, in the book of Matthew, I should say. Um, here's a couple of prophecies and promises that Malachi gives, though, that are really significant to today's message because they speak about John the Baptist. And they talk about John the Baptist is going to come. And Malachi makes this point, and then we pick it up in Matthew, and John the Baptist comes. You can kind of see the flow of thought there. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then over in chapter 4, he continues, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And, and so this one, John the Baptist, is, 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 he's likened to Elijah, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not Elijah, but he's like him. And he's a very significant individual that is going to come 
Isaiah gives a little more clarity. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so there's this great prophecy that after these 400 years that God is going to speak again. He's going to speak to his people once again. And uh, that takes us to today's story. As we turn then to the Gospel of Luke, we learn some lessons from Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are the parents of John the Baptist. And uh, that's a very fascinating story here. And let me just give you a very helpful and, and, and very, very big idea today. You'll want to cling to this one and put it on your fridge and maybe just remember it because I think it'll be very relatable to all of us in our lives. But even in the silence, God is working. We're going to see that today, that even in the 400 years of silence, God was working. He was planning and preparing and making things ready to come into the world. So here we are today, learning to navigate the silence of God and three lessons from Zechariah and Elizabeth this morning. And we're going to answer basically in the message three questions. Each question gets a little bit less time and, and the first question gets the bulk of our time here. Um, learning to navigate the silence of God. How do we do that? So let's start in Luke chapter 1 verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here's the first lesson we need to know about navigating the silence of God is that living a godly life matters. Living a godly life matters. Now, it says here that they were righteous and blameless about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and the reality is, think about this, the reality is not that they were perfect. That's, n that's not the, the sense. Like today, we can say we are perfect because Christ has given us his life and his righteousness and made us perfect. For them, though, it simply means they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And the reality is they expressed their faith by honoring God's law, by keeping God's law to the best of their ability and when they failed it of course God put all the animal sacrifices in there that they offered up for their sins today we express our faith through the cross and through what Christ did on the cross so there's a little difference there between us today and them but we can see they're blameless and righteous as they honor God's law and I think it's really 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 awesome to see that they are still faithfully trusting God honoring his law and living a righteous and blameless life um, in, in a time of silence that's, that's hard when it when God is silent and you're dealing with an issue and, and, and God just just keep being faithful to God and note that their character is why God will use them now just a couple of things here about this godly life is that living righteously in evil times gives you stability one of the things we see when you talk about the silence of God here, it's, it's not just that we're dealing with the silence of God, but we're dealing with the, the people in Malachi get a very stern warning from Malachi that they, they've been in captivity in, in Babylon. It was supposed to turn their hearts back to God and they've come home and rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the temple, but they have not rebuilt their lives spiritually the way they should. They are still very spiritually compromised in relationship to the law, in relationship to their giving, in relationship to their worship, in relationship to their relationships. All of these things are dealt with in the book of Malachi and they're given stern warnings. So here we have Zechariah and Elizabeth. This means they're living in the minority. We talked about that last week about giving gratitude, being in the mi minority. Well, they're in the minority here, living blameless and righteous lives. <clears throat> and I think that is really fascinating. Also note what it says in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. This is the same Herod that took all the baby boys two years and under and had them killed so he could wipe out Jesus. I mean, think about that reality and think about how evil that king had to be. And I think that the times they lived in actually are very reflective of our times. We have a lot of very evil leaders in our world today. We just do. They're more evil than we know. We have a lot of churches, i sad to say, that are very spiritually compromised churches and are not declaring the truth 
in God's word. So I think that's really, really powerful. The reality is if you trust in Christ and embrace his righteousness and try to live blamelessly, you will be in the minority. The amazing thing here, think about this though, is that righteousness and blamelessness gives you stability in an unstable world. So what a tribute to this couple, advanced in years and yet living lives that honor God in a world that chooses not to. Here's the second thing, living righteously does not mean things always go our way, does it? Just because you choose to live for God doesn't mean you're going to be prosperous and successful and everything's going to go your way and you're going you know, to have you know, an arrow full, full of quivers per se because here's, here, here's Zachariah and Elizabeth, they don't have any children and they've been praying for children and they don't have any. And you think, well, wait a minute. You think, wait a minute. We don't have any kids. Now, let me jump ahead here, but in a small spoiler alert, but you probably know this, right? That they don't have any children, but they're going to have a child. That's the point of this story. But jump ahead to Luke 1.24 and listen to this. After she gives birth, here's what Elizabeth says. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So she's with child right now, hiding away until, I guess, until she starts to show, because she's saying she's pregnant, but they're going to probably question that. But here's what's fascinating to take away my reproach. You have to understand how significant it was for the Israelite people, for, for an Israelite woman to have a child. I mean, it was a disgrace if you didn't have children, didn't carry on the family name. Here's just a small note from the Ellicott's commentary. To take away my reproach among men, the words express in almost their strongest form the Jewish feeling as to maternity. To have no children was no more than a misfortune. It seemed to imply some secret sin which God was punishing with barrenness. And so I think that's fascinating that here are people who are living God-honoring lives, holy, blameless, righteous lives, and the world is looking at them with a curious eye like, you have a hidden sin in your life? Because you ain't got no kids. And if you don't have any kids, God must be punishing you think that's pretty fascinating and then i'll just add this to the the mix here living righteously ultimately pays off it ultimately pays off and it does for zachariah and elizabeth and it doesn't pay off just because they have a child one day but it pays off because god includes them in the christmas story because god uses their life for his glory and god will do that for you and me there is a spiritual blessing when you simply live righteously in an unrighteous world and god will use you doing the right thing in a difficult situation is uh, opens us up for a wonderful blessing from God. So the bottom line is, living godly lives matters. And just know this, that even in the silence, God is working. So just live that, live that righteous, live, live that holy, blameless life, even in the silence, and know that God is working. Here's a second lesson, Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And I just learned this this week, I'll just throw this out there, that that you could only burn incense one time. All the priests, they would draw lots, and you, could, you got to do this job one time, and it was everybody wanted to burn the incense at least once in their ministry, and so he gets to burn the incense here as the lot falls to him. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you you shall call his name John. Second lesson we can learn here and just take to note, take to heart. While God was not communicating nationally, he was still speaking personally. So maybe God's not speaking on a national level, but God is still speaking personally. That kind of resonates back to us. Like we don't have a situation today, I don't believe, where God is speaking like through the prophets of old, like nationally, but he speaks through his word to us today, does he not? He speaks to us very personally, and that's what's going on here. He's not communicating on a national stage for these 400 years, but he is coming to people like Zechariah on, a, on, a, on occasion and conversing with them. We, we, we just read in here that there are a multitude of people outside praying while he's offering incense. So there are those godly, righteous individuals. They're communicating with God. It's like they're praying to him, and they must have had some sort of, felt like there was some sort of communication. But even more, think about the story of Simeon. And I think we'll be there next week, but it's over in Luke chapter 2. If you remember the story of Simeon, remember his story in Luke 
There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So here, Simeon, God had communicated to him personally, you're not going to pass away until the Messiah comes. And we'll talk about that next week, I believe. But fascinating there to consider. The silence of God is a national thing. The prophets are not speaking to the people of Israel, but he is speaking to them personally one on one in instances. I think that's really just awesome. Ironically here now, what's going to happen is God's going to break his silence and he will begin to speak to the nation of Israel nationally through the prophet John and then through Jesus. Remember these words over in Hebrews. Hebrews 11.1, 1. long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow, that's so amazing. So Jesus marks a communication change here. God's going to start to communicate through Jesus directly to each one of us. He was speaking through the prophets, and, and we can read some of the parables about that. Like, like, yeah, you know, he sent his prophets, and they killed him, and then he sent his son. They, they killed his son. But, but, but it's kind of fascinating to see what's going on here. We understand Jesus' mission when he came, right? to die on the cross, redeem us from sin, and to offer us his life. But he he did more than that. He took on human flesh, and he made himself relatable to us. Remember when God told Moses, you can't look at me and live? I have so much glory, you can't look at me and live? And so Jesus is the glory of God come to earth, and we can look at God face to face. We can communicate. We can walk with and talk with and, and, and learn from Jesus as he's here on the earth. That's what's going on here in Jesus. And we just read about, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just remember that line for later. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But that's Jesus in human flesh, and so he can relate to us. He took on our flesh. He relates to what we're going through. We can relate to God. We can look at God. We can, we can talk and talk to and walk with and learn from God. Here's the thing that we see in this personal communication like he has with Simeon or Zechariah, that even in the silence, God is still working. He is still preparing. He's still communicating with those whose hearts are turned toward him. In fact, even on a global scale, God was working outside of the Jewish nations. He was working to prepare things for the Messiah. Many of us remember this great, great war man, great war hero or leader, however you want to classify him, Alexander the Great. Not saying he was a great guy, necessarily. Um, And I've heard other stories like this, but I found this, some commentary I'll share here. A Song of Faith, an excerpt from, uh, I think it's a pastor, Ed Rowell. From 356 to 323 B.C., God brought to power a man known as Alexander the Great. As Alexander took his army around the Mediterranean region, he set up cities and libraries for the sole purpose of spreading the Greek culture and language. By the time that Rome came to power, Greek was the language of commerce and education. This influence led to the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, what scholars today call the Septuagint. Gentiles were then able to become acquainted with the principles of Judaism. Later, when the biographies of Jesus and and letters of instruction for the early churches were written, they were written in Greek. Alexander the, the Great believed he was on a divine mission, although he personally did not know the one true God. In the silence, God was preparing for Christmas. When Rome came to power, one of the lasting legacies was a system of roads going to every part of the empire. Hence the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Along with this united empire came unprecedented freedom to move from one Roman province to another. In the silence, God was preparing for Christmas. Wow. It's amazing what a change of perspective can bring. To the Jewish nation, it looked like God had abandoned them, but we can see from our perspective that he was very much at work, preparing the world, setting the stage for his greatest work, the coming of his son. And just remember that even in the silence, God is 
working. We go to chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, to their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And he quotes right there out of Malachi, if you caught that. And Zechariah said to the Lord, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Third lesson is when you pray, we should pray in faith. When we pray, let's pray in faith, right? And think about the three common answers to prayer, right? We pray, well, there's those three common answers. Yes, oh, yeah, I got what I wanted. No, oh, bummer, or wait, or not now. And right, we often confuse two and three, don't we? We don't know if, it, we don't know if it's a no or if it's a wait. Sometimes we know it's a no. We're praying for something and we know God's not going to give us that because we shouldn't ask for that. But sometimes we don't know if God is saying no or if God is saying wait, not now. But when we pray, we should pray in faith. Imagine if God had answered their prayers years earlier, right? Well, for one thing, John wouldn't have been, been born on time, right? He was supposed to be born on an exact time. Secondly, they wouldn't have known if it was the hand of God or Mary's biology just got sorted out, right? But because they're now old and she has a barren womb, now they know this is an act of God. This is not a new phenomenon for the Jewish people, is it, right? Think about that. Think about how many prominent Jewish patriarchs came from the barren womb, and I probably missed some here, but Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Samuel all came from the barren womb. They entered the world through the barren womb. And so John the Baptist is also added to that list of prominent births from barren wombs. Of course, Jesus' birth trumps them all because he didn't come from a barren womb. He came from a virgin womb. Wow, isn't that cool? The point here being that while Zechariah and Elizabeth, it seems like they had prayed for a child, I think now they've stopped. It would seem they've stopped because Zechariah's like, well, yeah, it can't happen now. I'm too old now. We gave up on that prayer. And it just made, made me stop and think about this. Sometimes God, God's answers to our prayers are hard to believe. Isn't that really odd how that works? Like we pray to God for something and then eventually he answers and it's like, did you really answer that prayer? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, that's hard to believe you answered that prayer that, that that really happened. It's like, well, why were you praying to him and asking for that? It's crazy sometimes, and maybe sometimes it's because God takes a long time to answer a certain prayer, and when he answers it, it's like, wow, did you really answer that? And we just have to be reminded that even in the silence, God was working. Even in the silence, as we prayed and waited and waited and waited, God was working. And sometimes God has something better in store for our prayer like a better answer to our prayer than what we're praying or sometimes he has a better timetable. just think again about Zachariah and elizabeth like like if they had had a child earlier they wouldn't have had a barren womb and john had to come from a barren womb and they could have had a child earlier they could have had jared earlier jared might have been a great son uh, upstanding kid he wouldn't have been no john the baptist he wouldn't have been the one that was like elijah in spirit and power so they could have Jared earlier or they could wait for God's best and we see what happens. We see what happens and they were faithful and righteous and blameless and they waited as anyone should and, and, and responded in the right way. But now, well, now Zachariah's having a little struggle here. At the same time, John, just know he needed some parents like Zachariah and Elizabeth. He needed godly parents who would honor God's word and keep him from strong drink and prepare him for the Holy Spirit. And so... God knew what he was doing when he told Zechariah, not now, wait, just wait. I thought about this too, really. Faith is about God's ability, not ours. 
we pray sometimes, right? We pray things. And think about the illogical reasoning of Zechariah again. He prays and asks God for a child. And when he can no longer, when they can no longer do it because they're so old, God gives them a child. And then Zechariah's like, but I'm too old now. <laughs> it's like, well, why were you asking God if it was about what you could do? It's not about what you can do. And I think oftentimes we kind of bring that attitude into our prayers it limits sometimes maybe what we pray for because we we look at our prayers like and our faith like well it's what i can do what will god let me do what, what will god let me handle what will god let me work out instead of just praying and turning it over to god and believing for what god can do and not limiting the work of his power in my life what if we prayed on occasion those audacious prayers that required true faith and I thought of one really audacious, I'll give you an example of an audacious prayer that you can pray. What do we usually pray for when we're going through a season of silence? What do we pray for? For the season to end, like for God to talk, like give me some insight here, right? And so here's an audacious prayer. What if we're going through a season of silence and God is saying, well, not now or wait or we just aren't hearing from God and we're just being reminded again that even in the silence, God is working. But as, if we remember that, that God's at work in our life, what if we prayed this prayer, this audacious prayer? What if we prayed for the work that God was doing in silence? If we just said, Lord, I know you're not speaking, so, but I know you're working. And I just pray for the work you're doing in my life. And I pray for what you have in store for me in your time. And uh, Lord, I just pray for the work you're doing in me. Help me receive it. What, what an audacious prayer that would be. But we're like, Lord, please talk to me soon. <laughs> I'm tired of waiting. <laughs> Give me an answer. Give me an answer. How about that? What if we had faith in what he was doing and what he was able to accomplish? Now, this takes us to the most interesting part of the story, right? When Zechariah loses his ability to speak for nine months. And, and you think, it's crazy, like he had a lapse of faith here. I don't know what's going on here. He surely knew what Daniel had told the Israelite people, that the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to come about now. And he certainly knew what Malachi said, that Malachi is going to come, and he's going to come right before the Messiah. And so the angel shows up and says, you're going to be the parents of John the Baptist, the forerunner. And Jesus is right on deck, and he should have known all that, so why is he doubting here? Why? What's going on with his doubting? Well, just know this, that Zechariah's unbelief did not negate the promise, but it did steal the joy maybe, right? Sometimes when, when we doubt God, it doesn't, like, he doesn't take away the blessing, but we just don't enjoy it as much. And a time of celebration for Zechariah and Elizabeth became a time of frustration probably for the next nine months. It's like, I mean, Zechariah just couldn't speak. I'm sure it put a damper on things. And it takes us to this second question this morning then. Why did God take Zachariah's ability to speak? So why did, you ever ask that question? I asked it this week. I thought, so why did God, what's really going on here? Why did he take his ability to speak? I'll give you four reasons. Because again, how many think, God, you're being kind of hard on Zachariah. This is kind of extreme. Like, why did you take his ability to speak for nine months? Just because he struggles a little bit with this issue and we can say that but again god is always just and perfect and righteous in everything he does and i think there is some reasons here that we can work through i think all four of these can play into the whole picture of why the ones at the end i think carry more weight but one reason why is he didn't believe so we'll just ride with the text what does the text say and behold you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. You did not believe my words. And so, so on some level, if the punishment, if you can call this even a punishment, was due to his lack of faith. It's kind of like he doubted God's word, and so God gave him this notable consequence. If you won't believe my words, then I'll take your words. <laughs> How about that? For the next nine months. You didn't believe my words, I'm going to take your words for the next nine months. And, and the thing is, I think this plays a role here, but I think there is certainly more going on. Here's a second reason why. Um, look at verses 21 through 23. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. He hasn't come out like he's supposed to burn incense and come out. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and, remind, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
So second reason why I think maybe God took his words is because God wanted to get the people's attention about the importance of this baby. Like, and so John, just picture John's coming out and he's trying to tell them this great news. We're going to have a baby. <laughs> he can't talk, you know. But, but beyond that, he's got to tell them who's going to be born. And it's like, and he's got to try to make signs and explain what's going on to these people. And it's like, but he lost. And so there's something here about him losing his, his ability to speak. And when he speaks again, when the baby is born nine months later, and I, it just something about this gets the people's attention and they sit up and take notice that this is a special child, right? And there's this third reason, and this kind of feeds into this the silence is golden aspect, right? But God wanted to speak to John in the silence. Like for the next nine months, John's going to have a lot of silence. Uh, There's going to be a lot of silence in John's home. And, 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 And what might be frustrating, at the same time, the level of silence might open Zechariah to hear more clearly from God. It might clear out some of the day to day distractions so he can hear exactly what. God wants him to hear. It's sort of like what he's doing for the people. He's like communicating through John's silence how important this baby is, but to John, on a deeper and more personal level, it's like, John, get a hold of this. This is a really important child coming into the world. Take care with him. So he has nine months of personal silence to meditate and reflect on the significance about what is about to transpire. You know, we may go through what we would call a season of silence, a period of time when God seems silent or maybe God seems distant. We go through those times, right? Think about that. A couple of things to keep in mind about those seasons. First, we can view that season in one of two ways. Remember the two sides of silence again, right? When God is silent, we can, it can be unsettling to us or troubling to us or disorienting to us. Or on the other hand, we can say silence is golden. We can pray that audacious prayer, Lord, in your silence, would you do your work in me? And let me know the work you're doing and give me the faith and confidence to just hang on. It could be sometimes, think about this, are there some things God wants to say to us that he can only say to us in the silence? Like we gotta get rid of all the noise and we're so busy talking to ourselves and we're so busy you know, making so much noise in, in life and sometimes... He just needs to clear out the noise. Second, in those times of silence, we always have the word of God right here. We always have the word of God. Today, God speaks to us through his word. Even if you go through a time of silence, and I understand it, what we mean by going through a time of silence is when you're going through that season in life and you're reading the scriptures and you're studying and you're trying to find an answer to your problem and you just can't seem to find one. But just know the answer's there. This is the answer. Just read it, find comfort, find hope, find peace in, in the midst of this and, and just learn to trust God's word. And sometimes God may be saying to us in those times, in, the, in those seasons of silence, he might be saying, everything you have is right here. Just trust it, just read it, just know that I am with you. And the advantage we have that, of course, Zechariah didn't have is today Christ has come into the world. He has died. He has rose again. And he's risen again into our hearts and in our lives. The Bible says Christ is our life today. So we have Christ so much closer than even Zechariah did. He's right here. Even when he's silent, we're just reminded that Christ is our life. And Christ is holding us together every single day. So just know that, just know that, just know that even in the silence, God is saying, even in the silence, I am working, I am working. Max Parizzo in the New York Times shares this story. To save the sound of a Stradivarius, a whole city must keep quiet. Fascinating story. Floris Rostelli was mortified, and as she wiped the counter at the cafe where she works, she knocked over a glass and it shattered loudly on the floor. The customers all stood still, petrified. Miss Rostelli recalled, I was like, of all the days, this one, she said. Even a police officer popped in and asked me to keep it down. I was so embarrassed. The people of Cremona, Italy, are unusually sensitive to noise right now. The police have cordoned off streets in the bustling city center, and traffic has been diverted. The city's mayor implored Cremora citizens to avoid any sudden and unnecessary sounds. Cremora is home to the workshops of some of the world's finest instrument makers, including Antonia Stradivaria. 
who produced some of the finest violins and cellos ever made. The city is getting behind an ambitious project to digitally record the sounds of the Stradivarius instruments for posterity. And that means being quiet. So that future generations won't miss out on hearing the instruments, sound engineers are producing the Stradivarius Sound Bank, a database storing all the possible tones that the instruments can produce. The engineers thought their project was finally ready to get underway, but a sound check revealed a major flaw. The sound of a car engine or a woman walking in high heels produced vibrations that ran underground and reverberated in the microphones, making the recording worthless. The police cordoned off the streets. The auditorium's ventilation was turned off. Every light bulb in the concert hall was unscrewed to eliminate a faint buzzing sound. The violinist played a C major scale as the recording team watched their screens responding to the crisp sound of the instrument. Then it happened, and they froze. Stop for a moment, please, the sound engineer said. They rewound the recording and played it again. The technician heard the problem loud and clear. Who dropped a glass on the floor? Oh, what a great story, right? Sometimes silence is so necessary and so hard, but silence ultimately is golden. Just know that even in the silence, God is working. Now, I have a fourth reason. Why did God take away his ability to speak for nine months? I'll give you the reason I really think ultimately is at the heart of this, and it's pretty cool. I never thought of this before. But again, even in the silence, God is working. Look at this passage right here, Luke 1, 57. Now, now John and Elizabeth, Elizabeth's given birth. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote his, he wrote his name is John, and they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Wow. Why did God take his silence? Let me tell you something about God. Do you know God likes to illustrate things in life, right? And so remember Jesus always taught with parables, always used parables. And in the Old Testament, there are a lot of things that the, that the prophets would speak and they would speak and they would actually uh, symbolize their message in weird ways. How many of you know some of these stories? Like how many know he, uh, Hosea's adulterous wife or Balaam's talking donkey? Or how about Jeremiah's dirty underwear? You know that story? Or how about when Isaiah preached in his underwear for three years? You all know those stories? They're in the Bible. They're in there. God likes to symbolize his message. So why did God take away Zechariah's ability to speak for nine months? Simply because as God breaks Zechariah's silence, he is breaking his own. Like, What's the, what's the last thing that he writes on that tablet? He is John, and John is born, and boom. Zechariah can talk again. And so, yeah, he had, it was his lack of, of belief, and that, that played a part of it, but, but that seems like an extreme punishment. And yeah, all these things are going, but I think it symbolizes, I have broken my own silence. And now I am ready to communicate to the people through John that Jesus, the Messiah, is coming into the world. Oh, how amazing is that? You can read the end. Because Zechariah one, we don't have time to go through. I was going to go through it, and, and, but we don't have time to go through it today. But read the end if you want. And just think about, read through this and think about what, here's, here's the question, the third question. I'll just throw it out there real briefly. What does God say when he breaks his silence? And we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but what does God say when he breaks his silence? We're not going to read through that whole passage. I'll give you three brief things. My heart is still for you. My heart is still for you. In other words, I have not forgotten you. Yeah, I've been quiet for 400 plus years, but I, my heart is still for you. I have not forgotten you. He wants them to know that. He wants them to under, understand that simple reality. Here's the, reality, here's the truth, right? Sometimes guys might get this, maybe, right? Some, sometimes, um, sometimes 
we think silence equates with anger, right? Your wife gives you the silent treatment. It's like, ooh, what did I do? Was it our anniversary yesterday? And so we, we do that. We tend to think, and so it's easy to think, oh, God is just silent with Israel because he's angry at them. And I don't think that's the truth. I hear pastors say that all the time, something to the Job effect, you know, that, well, God's not answering your prayer in life because, you know, just like they thought of, 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 of Zachariah and Elizabeth, you know, that they didn't have a child because, you know, they were being punished because there's some sin in your life and uh, God won't answer your prayers. And I don't think that's the right thing. Sometimes we're praying for something and God might say, yeah, I can answer that, but you got, we have a bigger issue. There's a greater issue in your life right now than that thing you're praying for. It's this, it's this sin issue. We need to deal with that. Can we deal with that? And he, he wants to draw attention to it, but I don't think it's necessarily the idea that God is angry. So I think that's pretty powerful. And we know what Paul wrote to us, right, in Romans, to us as believers, if God is for us, who can be against us? Just know that God is fighting for us. He's on our side. He went to the cross to make a way. And that is not a real question. That is, of course, a rhetorical one. Second thing he says, so he says, uh, my heart is still towards you. I have not forgotten you. Then he says, I'm coming to visit you. Hey, I'm coming to visit. That could be a scary one sometimes, right? You get that call, you know. You know, you're, you're living alone for the first time in your own place. And mom says, hey, I'm coming over to visit. <laughs> Uh, how soon? <laughs> I think I've been there, done that, so that's why I'm, I can bring that one up. I can relate to that. Oh, boy. But it's fascinating. If, if you read through Zechariah here, he uses the past tense, like he has come to visit you. He has redeemed us. It's like he hasn't come yet. Jesus is 33 years away from the cross and the empty tomb, but he's using the past tense. And Zechariah just seems to understand now what God was doing in the silence. He was making preparations to come to earth. And, and when John came, the forerunner came, it was, it was, it was done. Like Jesus has already come because the forerunner is here who's going to announce Jesus and nothing can stop what is coming. And how amazing it is that God would take on humanity, that he would take on human flesh he would come to visit us and become one of us and then the last thing he says to us look at the very end here luke 1 78 and 79 because of the tender mercy of our god whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who are in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace and he simply says my face will shine upon you my face will shine upon you. I, my heart is still for you. I have not forgotten you. I'm coming to visit you and my face will shine upon you. And the light of the world is coming into a world of darkness to illuminate all things. How amazing, how amazing. This Christmas, we can, we can this Christmas, we can be the light of the world to somebody. We can be Christ to somebody. We can shine the light of Christ on somebody because Christ has come and shined his light in us and on us and he will shine his light through us let me give you just a couple of personal applications and then a final comment here today's personal application this week listen for god in the silence let me just encourage you today if you're if you find a time of silence when it's just listen for god to speak if you're in a season of silence even more so if you're in a silence season of silence um just know this embrace it knowing full well that god is at work if, if you're in a season of silence right now, just embrace this season knowing that full well that God is at work. He's, he's doing something amazing. Pray that audacious prayer. Lord, what are you doing in this season of silence? And I was just thinking about this. How many know the story? How many have heard the story? The years when there was no Christmas. Do you remember those? Anybody remember that? Ever, ever hear that story? The years when there was no Christmas. You gotta go back a little ways. Yeah, there was, there was a period of time when there was no Christmas. There were 4,000 years when there was no Christmas. But then God broke his silence. The sunrise from on high visited us. His face shined upon us. And that, my friends, is the beginning of the original Christmas story. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you that we understand the beauty of this season and what it means that you would take on human flesh and come into our world and visit us. Thank you, Lord, for the story of Zechariah. Thank you, Lord, that you broke your silence.
Thank you for illustrating that through, through, through John and can you just, or through Zachariah. And can you just tell Zachariah this morning, thank you for putting up with nine months of not being able to talk so we can understand exactly what you are doing for all of us. Give you all the honor and glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this song. We're going to go out on a song today. Mm-hmm.